Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. So you see right there, our sermon title is New Thoughts About the Greatest, or about greatness, either way. New Thoughts About the Greatest. And so as we do that, what I like to do is, when you think about greatness, again, I like sports, and so what I think of is football first, and Who's the greatest? And, and I know it, at least Bill will agree with me that Tom Brady probably is the greatest. Or you might have different things. I, being from Minnesota, I might think Randy Moss is pretty much the greatest because he changed everything for the Vikings for a few years. So we all have different opinions. Uh, then you, if you go into basketball, you'll be like, well, it's either LeBron James or Michael Jordan. You know, who's the greatest? Well, one of those two would be the greatest. And and then I'd like you to move outside of sports and think of maybe who's the greatest poet or the greatest leader, the greatest playwright or the greatest actor, the greatest author. And then we look at our text for today. And we say, well, who is the greatest disciple? And then we have to think, well, what's the criteria? What would the criteria be to, to figure out who is the greatest? And as we do that, for the disciple, you might say, well, maybe, you know, what's their resume? Maybe maybe it's um, the power or authority or their abilities, or are they in that inner circle? You know, Peter, James, and John, maybe they're the three that are truly the greatest. Um, maybe it's leadership or, or um, knowledge, or maybe it's their ethics, or there's all these different criteria, but you know what we have to do to determine who is the greatest is we have to start comparing and looking around and say, well, is it this one or this one? We look at the resume. But for Jesus, see, in our, in our uh, scriptures, what we have, in, in especially in, here in Matthew chapter 18, and then also in, in Matthew chapter 20, this question about who is the greatest comes up both times. And here in Matthew 18, it's different than, than Jesus' response in chapter 20. Let me see if I can quick find that chapter 20. I don't see it right here as I'm looking, but I know it's there. And it talks about service in Matthew 20. I believe it's Matthew 20. It talks about serving. But who's the greatest here is the one who becomes like a little child. And what's true about a little child? Well, little children don't go around normally saying, you know, I'm going to put myself lower they're just dependent and needy. Well, for the disciples to think of being like a child as being the greatest is a new way to think. What are some thoughts, you know, because Jesus comes in and as he comes in, he kind of turns everything upside down in life, doesn't he? The first shall be last. Lose your life to find it. The abundant life isn't about having everything we want, but it's about loving and serving others, right? And so all these things are opposites for us. And so when they think about greatness, they're thinking like sports. They're thinking like, I need to compare and see, is my position better than everyone else's? But Jesus, again, explodes that too. New thoughts. To truly be like a child is to be dependent and needy. That's the sign of greatness. Are there some thoughts that you've had your whole life that Jesus might just need to say, let's have some new thoughts. Let's go a new direction. New thoughts away from comparison, away from the resume to being this new way like a little child. The, the Greek word is padion, I believe it is. 
Well, for us to kind of move away from that self-centered view, okay, which is the norm, it's what we were born with, it's what we tend to live out, okay? Their new thoughts mean to move away from victimhood. Look how lousy my life has been. See, let me compare it to all these other people. See how bad my life's been. Or self-affirmation. I live all my life to just get other people to think well of me. That's the one I struggle with so much all the time. Instead, it's to learn to see life no longer about me being the center, but Christ being the center and how I might live under him in his kingdom. And there's three great questions to ask to kind of move us there. The first one is, what's your image of God? The second one is, what is your identity in Christ? And the third one is, then how does that new identity in Christ impact your relationships with others? How are you relating to others? And there's a friend of mine, I, I think she's watching right now even from St. Louis, Missouri. And y'all might just wave at her even though she can't see you. And so she, I asked her these questions because, you see, she's really, really suffering right now. She's going through something called pancreatitis. And that is some nasty stuff. Her pain is awful. Others of us here in the congregation, we understand that, don't we? We have a lot of people that deal with a lot of severe chronic pain. So as she's doing that, I just asked her, so what is your image of God? And, you know, ever since she told me this, I can't get this image out of my head. It's a new way of thinking for me about God and his image. I usually would think of a shepherd with his sheep and how much I need that. I need him as my shepherd. I might think of him as my king, and he's a benevolent king who meets all my needs. There's a lot of different ways of, of having an image of God, my Savior who rescues me, just like he rescued the disciples when they were scared in the boat, and he said, peace be still, and he saved them from their fears and, and from death. But what my friend up in St. Louis described for me, I thought this was great, is just picture a man from like the chest up, who's smiling, and of course, this would be Jesus. So, And if you want to know the image of God, who best gives us the image of God? Of course, that's Jesus. And so she described Jesus smiling, but not just that. She described him as having kind of sunlight pour through him, or light pour through him. And the colors she described were yellows and oranges. And, and I've, I've listened to somebody talk about some artist work and how yellows and oranges are described light, of course, and warmth and maybe a little bit even of joy. What an awesome image of God. What's your image? I thought that was just great. So then I went on eagerly to see the next question. So what's your identity in Christ? And she said, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you in that one. And I said, okay, thanks for your honesty. You know, I always appreciate honesty more than the right answer. And so she was honest. I love that. And yet there's still some work to be done, isn't there? Just like for you, and for you and for me, we all have work to do to grow into who are we in Jesus? And as we do this, I want to present a few things to you. First, I want to share something about who we are as poor in spirit. Matthew 5, remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So if we think we have nothing, we are poor, we are in poverty spiritually, we have nothing to offer to God, we are needy. We are dependent upon Jesus. Do you know what that makes us? If we really get it, if we recognize that we don't have all this stuff to bring to God, but we really recognize we're poor in spirit, that makes us, you and me, the greatest. If we look at some more, I've got a few more here for you. How about... 
1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide the way out so you can stand up under it. Whenever I'm struggling with temptation, as long as I look to myself, I fail. I fall into it. But when I'm dependent on Jesus, when I'm needy, I say, I need you, God, to do for me. He says, oh, you great one. I'll meet those needs. We are dependent on Jesus to provide for us the spirituality that we need, the rescue from temptation that we need. If we think about Psalm 23, Psalm 23, a beautiful psalm. And in there, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want or I shall not have any needs, okay? Because he fulfills them all. I am so needy. Sheep, again, when God calls us a sheep, you know my statement here, right? That's not a compliment, Okay, sheep are stupid. I had a friend or a relative up in Minnesota raised sheep. They would look up during a rainstorm and have potentially drown. Okay, they're not smart animals. They may be kind of cute, but not when they get old. Okay, and they're not smart. They like to stray. All those things. They don't have a defense mechanism. Okay, so what we need is a shepherd. They are needy. They are dependent on their shepherd to guide them, to provide for them and to protect them. As needy ones, according to our text today, you know what that makes those sheep? Great. You know what you and I are as those sheep to God, our good shepherd? We are greatest. We are the greatest because we are those like little children who see our need for Jesus to be dependent on him. Now, do we always do that? No, we fail a lot because we keep trying to do it ourselves. And for that, as I say the word trying it, it reminds me of something. And so I've got, if you have your piece of paper and, and your pen or pencil, I want you to write this down with me. I'll show it to you. Okay? Let's see if we can see it. Now, whenever I spend time with people, I, sit, I, I talk with them about Jesus and just about life following Jesus. And, and I oftentimes hear some phrase like, I'm trying, or some derivative of it, something like it, okay? I'm trying, Pastor, I'm trying. And again, I believe you, and that's, you know, it's, it's okay, but it's not the best. Instead of saying, I'm trying, I'd like you to use these other words over here. So if you could write this down and, and practice this, I'd like you to actually learn this. Instead of saying, I'm trying, say, I'm hearing, I'm receiving, I'm rejoicing, I'm believing. Would you, would you say those with me? I'm hearing, I'm receiving, I'm rejoicing, I'm believing. Let's try it one more time. I'm hearing, I'm receiving, I'm rejoicing, I'm believing. Now, in order to best kind of share what I mean by that, I want to share a little story with you if my, if my little computer here turns on. There we go. And I've shared this with a number of you, but it's worth hearing again. A pastor was once asked to speak to a group of Christians in a residential treatment facility for substance abuse. And he was to use 1 John chapter 3 as a text for Bible study. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. A counselee there said, I'm searching for God. I'm wanting to find better ways to please him. See, that's I'm trying. To that, the pastor said, <clears throat> What is more important than your seeking God or trying? 
is that you have a God who is actively seeking you. And that you have a God who has found the way, he has made the only way to please him through the cross of Jesus. Now, when I was talking to my friend up in St. Louis, I followed that up by saying, you know, that beautiful thing is that if you're baptized and if you trust in Jesus for your salvation, that, you know what that means? That means that you're in Christ. You're connected to Christ. You're in Christ. And so what that means for you is that as God the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism and he said, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. Well, if you're in Christ, then the Father, because of Jesus, is well pleased with you. Isn't that awesome? Or, if you will, hear what St. Paul said. St. Paul is writing Philippians 3, and he says this, If anyone else has reasons or thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, hey, let's compare a little bit. Let's, let's look and see if I'm the greatest. I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. If you're going to compare and say who is the greatest, we would certainly say of all the Pharisees, of all those religious leaders, of all those teachers, it would be Saul or Paul, right? But then he goes on to say this, but whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss, for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You know what Paul is doing here? He calls all those things he used to say, hey, if we're comparing, hey, if I'm looking, then I look really great. I'm way better than you. My resume is really stacked. But he calls his resume dung. What I'd like for you and me to do is take our resume that we're so ready and willing to compare with others and say, hey, or, oh, I'm really lousy. How about we take that and burn it? How about we hear what Paul writes in another letter, the letter to, to the Corinthians, the second letter that we have to the Corinthians. Chapter 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The resume is gone. The new has come. It goes on to say, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you want to look at your standard, if you want to look at who you are in Christ, as you desperately are needy and dependent on him, but in him, as it says in Psalm 48, great is the Lord. When you humble yourself, become like a child and depend fully on Jesus, you know what that makes you? Absolutely great. God's way. Like an old singing group in the, in the, in the past, I don't know what, what decade it was, but the group is called the Flamingos. And they sing the song, I only have eyes for you. What if we only had eyes for Jesus, to look only to him, to see what he has, to to hear him, I'm hearing you, Jesus. 
I'm receiving you, Jesus. I'm receiving the gift you have for me. I'm, I'm receiving the righteousness I have because of what you have done for me on the cross. I'm rejoicing in that, and I'm believing that. Now, whenever you say, I'm trying, I'd, I'd like for you to actually go back to this list. Are you trying what? To hear? Are you struggling to hear his good news? Are you struggling to receive it? And why would that be? Are you struggling to rejoice in it because it doesn't fit with the thoughts you've had in the past? Well, Jesus is saying, I'm making all things new. I want you to have new thoughts about what makes for greatness. Are you struggling to believe it because of your past? Are you struggling to believe that what Jesus did on the cross is sufficient for you? Okay. I'll accept you wherever you are. But Jesus says, keep hearing. Remember what it says about faith in Romans 10? Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So we need to keep hearing about what God has done for us in Jesus, and his spirit works through that word that we hear to help us to live as those who are completely dependent on Jesus and therefore who are completely great. That's what we are. What's our identity in Jesus? Say it with me. I am great. I'm the greatest in Jesus, only in Jesus, desperately clinging to Jesus. And it says in John 15, verse 5, it says that you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's the, the passage John 15 talks about. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And that's where I want to lead the next part. So who's the greatest? Well, those who are dependent, those who are needy, those who are in Christ depending fully on him, like we're always going to struggle to do, so don't think you're going to do it perfectly. And every time you struggle, then what do you do? You go back as a needy person to Jesus and remember who he makes you to be. Then what we do is we look at, at John 15, 5, and then we turn to 2 Corinthians 11. And I don't have this marked, so I apologize. Give me just a second. So if we look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 3, it says this, I hope you'll put up with a little of my foolishness, Paul says, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid, or it, it could be, I am terrified for you. That just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Okay, so what we have after this little section, like verses one through five, it talks, it doesn't talk about children anymore. It talks about little ones. But it's a really interesting transition there. It moves from little ones age-wise to just little ones. And I would say little ones in the faith, maybe newcomers to the faith, or maybe those who are just less mature in the faith. They really are needy, they, but they don't always know it. And it talks about three things. And I want you to, to think of these. It talks about stumbling, straying and self-centered sinning. All sinning is self-centered, but stumbling, straying, and self-centered sinning. Now, it talks about stumbling. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble may have like a donkey's millstone, not just a small one, but a big one, put around his neck and thrown in, cast into the sea. That's a big deal. So it's not just about causing a little one to stumble a little bit, you know, like when you, when you, Tell your kids about, that there's something that's not really true just to get something to happen, you know, okay? That's a little stumble. They'll be like, ah, oh, that really wasn't true, okay? 
But what we're talking about is a dangerous one that would lead them to die or perish in the faith. And therefore, we need to be really careful because that, that little one is the greatest. They're so needy and they don't always see it. And what would happen if we looked at others who are on the verge of stumbling or if we look at the next little lesson about the sheep, one that sheep that strayed away and we were aware and focused on what do they need? And so we looked at them and we looked for them and we looked out for them because they're the greatest. And then what would happen if we saw the person who's stuck in that sin and they just don't really see it? And so we go to them again and again and maybe bring others with us so that they can actually hear and and kind of be warned, rebuked. The needy among us need correction. The needy among us, like you and me, we need correction. We need love enough to be corrected, to be forgiven, to be put in the right direction, to be brought back to Jesus. We need all those things. But for you and for me, as we deal with others who are stumbling, straying, and sinning, we need to see them in a new way. Not as a hardship, not, yeah, if they leave the church, that's fine with me. No. To see them as the greatest. Matthew 25, verse 40, that Jesus says this. He says, whatever you've done to the what? To the least of these brothers of mine. These are the ones that Paul is afraid for. Afraid that, just like Eve was deceived, so that they also might be deceived by the serpent's cunning. Those least of these, which Jesus says, whoever does whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it, how? You've done it unto me. What would happen if we saw that person with the face of Jesus? That person, would that change then how we think of them? They're not just some needy person that doesn't ever get it. They're not a bother. They're not a burden. They're the greatest. They have the greatest need to be connected again to Jesus, who is the greatest. And whatever we do for that, them, the least of these, we've done it for the one who is the greatest, the one who's given up his life, who did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. That you, like Paul, might now be the very righteousness of God, his treasure, the one with whom God is well pleased. And we would desire that for them as well, the greatest in the midst of their need. Now, we would never do that on our own. That's why we, apart from Jesus, the vine, we, the branches, could do nothing. But in him, we, the branches, love well because we have been First loved well. These are some new thoughts for us, maybe. These are some new ways for us. And as we live in the right image of God and then begin to see ourselves and our identity in Christ in the right way, that will impact then how we treat those, even the greatest one in their greatest need. Amen?